Turn me with me, if you would, to the book of Acts. We're going to start in chapter 8. This Sunday and next Sunday will be on reclaiming repentance, taking this word back from how it's been manipulated over time and history and today's understanding and been often confused with the subject of penance. And that is definitely not what this word means. We're going to look at Acts 8 today. One thing I'm going to ask, in fact, I just now realized I turned my phone off when I should have had it ready to go. So I'm going to flip it on real quick, make sure it's ready to go. But if you have the literal word app, we are going to use that again. Some of you have said, well, I really like the sheets we have where we diagram out uh, the the, the, uh, scriptures and those types of things. I like them too. But I definitely didn't want to give you your Bible in your lap, your scripture in one hand, trying to hold a pen, and having your phone ready to go at the same time. So we're going to settle just for the phone, if that's okay with everybody, uh, and do that so that we can all research this together. And I hope that you find interest in this app and that you've been able to use it some in your own Bible study. There are four facets that we're concerned with when we're looking at scripture. Number one, you've got a passage at hand, something that maybe you're dealing with. Right now, We're doing a long extended word study on a word that's created great confusion. In fact, some people even have books on this and they've named their books the most misunderstood word in the Bible. It truly is. And so we're tackling it now. Uh, Number one, to come to a, a general understanding of what repentance means. But number two, to also hopefully equip you with tools where you can sit down and say, you know what, if I just make the decision and take the time, I can study this stuff out myself. I can actually sit down and do Bible study and reap good rewards and benefits out of it. So when that happens, what you do is, is you start with the passage at hand. What am I currently dealing with? And we're calling that the branches. Then you want to pay attention to the context that's around it. You want to back up just a little bit. What comes before and what comes after? We're calling that the tree. Then you have to start asking bigger questions. How does the chapter flow all of this into it? And what might be the whole thrust of the book? of which I'm looking at. Well, if that's the case, you're now looking at the forest. And then you have to start asking questions. Well, what else did this particular author write that I might need to consider? Or the Testament as a whole. Am I in the old or the new? Or what does the Bible just have to say about all of this and put all this information together? Now, this may sound daunting. You can do it. The only thing that usually keeps us from that is I'm too, let's hear it, busy. I'm too busy. And I guarantee you, that here is the greater portion than being busy, okay? Mary Martha, Mary Martha, that bring in anybody? Choose the greater portion. Choose the idea of being at the feet of Jesus rather than being busy about Jesus. I promise you'll be much more effective for Jesus if you spent time at the feet of Jesus. And every one of us can do that. None of us is exempt from that. So here's what we've looked at. Ten instances in the book of Acts. If you notice, we have three sections. We have a Jewish section. We have a short Samaritan section where it branches into Samaria, which is where we're going to start at today. And then you have a large section of Gentile interaction that takes place as the gospel begins moving forward. Now notice the ones that we've marked out, the Jewish ones we dealt with last week. You can go online, you can listen to that. We're not necessarily going to deal with Acts 13 because it's just a passing reference to John's baptism. But we have dealt more in depth with Acts 19 because Paul actually interprets what John's baptism was about before the coming of Christ. That's important for us to understand. What we're going to look at today is three passages. We're going to deal with Samaritan, then we're going to start getting into the Gentile part, but we're not going to go in chronological order because we're going to try to group them together by subject. And next week we'll deal with the last one and probably answer a lot of questions, I hope. So 
What is repentant? Repentance in the Samaritan section of the book of Acts. Let's start in verse 12 because we're dealing with a guy named Simon. Now, does anybody, real quick, as we, as we jump in, let's try to get our minds acclimated here. When I say the name Philip, what do we know about Philip in the Scriptures? He's only in there for a little bit. But what do we know about him? He was an evangelist. That's the biggest thing. His whole thrust was going place to place and telling people about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what he was all about. And so he's traveling along there. He comes into Samaria. He starts preaching to them. People start getting saved. And there's a guy, before he got there, he was known as Simon the Magician. Okay? Nobody? You've got to have a sense of humor today, please. Okay? Simon the Magician. He was somebody who was astounding people and confounding people with everything that he was able to do. He began to get a following. And then when Philip comes along, one of the major authentic things that God allowed for Philip to do were signs, but in a much different way to where they even captured Simon's attention about this. In verse 12 it says, But when they, what's the word, church? Believed. You need to pay attention to that. When the people who heard Philip preach believed, Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God, notice he had that as part of his message, and the name of Jesus Christ. They were being baptized, men and women alike. No discrimination there. But look at verse 13. Even Simon himself, what? Stop. Saved or unsaved? Notice that. He's saved. Is the belief in verse 13 any different from the belief in verse 12? No, it's not. In fact, notice what it says if we move back to that. They believed, notice, and were baptized. Okay, great. Notice here also, he believed was the idea. And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip as he observed signs and great miracles taking place. He was constantly amazed. Luke sets it up this way to show us there's no difference between the general belief of the people who heard and their follow-through with baptism and Simon's belief and follow-through with baptism. That's important to know because one thing that Philip did not have is he did not have the power to impart the Holy Spirit to people. Now, one thing that's really helpful for us, if you were sitting down and you were studying Acts, is to understand that when you're dealing with chapters 1 through chapter 10, you're dealing with a lot of transition stuff. There's a lot of things that take place in those 10 chapters that don't always readily make sense to us. And we stop here and we go, well, wait a second, that kind of seems like it contradicts this part. How come people aren't receiving the Holy Spirit immediately on this? How come these people did receive the Holy Spirit immediately and all of a sudden they're speaking in tongues? Should we have speaking in tongues as part of everybody's conversion situation? There's a lot of transition that goes on there. But it seems that whenever Peter goes and preaches to the house of Cornelius in Acts 10, that all of a sudden the boat starts to set right and once it's seen that everybody is a candidate for salvation, there's a lot of consistency that starts to come across the waters. Admittedly, it's a transition time. Does it contradict? No, it doesn't contradict. We have more revelation from God that's being presented to us to lead us to this point of what salvation looks like in our present age. This is why we are a church that believes in dispensations. God is not working the same way before the death and resurrection of Christ as he is now. Completely different ballgame. So, moving on here, skip down to verse 18, because what happens is, is that Peter and John come. Philip is not an apostle. Peter and John are apostles. And they come, and watch what happens. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, 
He offered them money. Is that for sale? It's not. Look what happens here. Saying, give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Now, here's the interesting thing. Did Simon have the Holy Spirit? No, he didn't. Not at this time. He did not. Peter and John had not laid hands on him. Was he still saved? He was because of what we saw in verses 12 and 13 and how consistent it is. So notice, this is a transitionary time. We've got to, we've got to just follow the text, let our minds grasp it. It'll show us. Notice, he offered them money. He said, I want to receive the Holy Spirit. Verse 20, but Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you. Ha, he's going to hell, see? Is that what it says? It doesn't. Your money's no good here. That's ridiculous to think that you could do this. Your thinking is messed up. Watch how he says this. May your silver perish with you because, here's the reason why, you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Understand this. Gift and payment make no sense together unless the gift is rendered because of a payment made. Does that make sense? God cannot offer his grace in salvation or the gift, referring specifically to the Holy Spirit here, to someone, and you turn around and say, you know what, I think I'll buy that. If you can buy it, it's no longer a gift. It now has become a transaction. You've now bartered for spiritual gain. That's not how grace works. You cannot pay for grace. Grace has already been paid for on the cross. Everything that pours out of that is a benefit for the believer is a permanent residing situation. Again, we're in a transition period. Give grace on that situation. But is a permanent residing in the believer that cannot be undone, and it can never be purchased or bought. It's freely given because payment has already been made. Why can't Simon buy it? Because it's already been purchased to give it to you for free. Jesus already died. Didn't he give the apostles this big, long lecture? It's actually to your benefit that I go away. Everybody remember that? And you know they were all thinking, yeah, right. Why was it the benefit? Because when Jesus isn't there physically speaking, but is ascended at the right hand of the Father, he asked the Father, Father, send to them the Holy Spirit. He sends the Holy Spirit, and now the Holy Spirit begins dwelling every single believer. Now you've got a lot more righteous testimony going around because every believer in Christ now has the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? God's looking to cover more ground. So yes, it's to your advantage. Does that mean that Jesus left you? Does that mean that you don't have the indwelling Christ? No, the entire New Testament testifies that when you believe in Christ, He comes to dwell in you bodily. He's with you always. He never leaves you. He never forsakes you. You're never on your own. There's never a time when you're alone with that. Christ has promised it. So understand, the advantage of the Holy Spirit showing this here, Simon makes the mistake of saying, I want to pay for that. No, 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 no. It's already been paid for by Christ. It is freely given. You can't do that. That's a blasphemous thought. Can Christians say blasphemous things? Okay, I just want to make sure. Some of you might not know. I'll go ahead and tell you. Yes. Okay? Look here. Verse 21. He says, You have no part or portion in this matter. Why? Look at the reason. Everybody see the four? Causal conjunction, right? So what we normally do in a situation if we're Bible studying here is we heavily underline that and kick an arrow back. Why? Because this is a big deal, and this right here, he is going to explain why. The reason why you have no part or portion in this matter with the Holy Spirit right now, transitionary time, okay, 
is that your heart is not right before God. You may be in relationship with Him, but you have a heart issue. Any believer ever been in relationship with God through Jesus Christ and have a heart issue with Him? None of you? Okay, just Jay. That's great. Okay? He's the only one who bothered to raise his hand. Every single person has been through this at some point where you felt indifferent to the things of God. And it's usually because the flesh has taken over and convinced us otherwise than His truth. Notice how he moves this on. Verse 22. Therefore, what's the word? Repent. What's the therefore, therefore? Why? What was the problem? What wasn't right? Your heart. Because your heart's not right. The cure is repent. You need a different way of thinking. You've gone into madness about this subject, and you need to come back into a sobriety in your mind. Your thinking is warped and messed up. It's got to be flipped. It's got to be changed. You don't think correctly about God. Notice what he moves on here. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours. Look how much intention is going into this. And pray the Lord that if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. Stop. If possible? Would God forgive wickedness like this in the heart? Good grief, if he wouldn't, we all got to need to stop and do a self-study, yes? I have to wonder where we've been at at one point. It doesn't matter if it's in our past. Some of us have got things we've done against God as Christians in our past that haunt us ridiculously. Are we going to stop for a second and say, well, if possible, God will forgive? Let me ask you the question. Why does Peter say, if possible? What would be a situation where God would not forgive the wickedness in Simon's heart? Blaspheming the Holy Spirit? Possibly. But that's something that happens back in Matthew, and that's already passed off the scene. I don't know that that could happen even at this time here in Acts. Get that. Nobody heard Jerry. Let me tell you what he said, because it was right. If he repents. Isn't that the prescription? Therefore, what? Repent. And if you don't repent, it's not possible for God to forgive you of this. You say, okay, hold the phone. I thought God forgave everything. What in the world is going on here? Okay, follow me. Notice that he gives an explanation here. Notice it's about the intention of your heart. Everybody see that? Very important. May be forgiven you. For, here's the reason why. Watch this. I see that you are number one in the gall of bitterness and number two in the bondage of iniquity. Now we've covered this. Notice that he says, I see. Peter says, I see. If you remember when we talked about the gift of discernment, when we went through spiritual gifts, Peter has the spiritual gift of discernment, spiritual discernment and being able to peer into people's hearts and determine what their motives are and if they are in fellowship or not in fellowship with the Lord. Peter has the ability to do that. He even gives Simon the two reasons as to why wickedness has filled his heart to think that he could pay for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Number one, he's in the gall of bitterness. Bitterness is an understanding of being envious in a situation or full of jealousy. Now, if you were to compare that with 1 Corinthians 3 at the very beginning, first three verses there, you find out that Paul actually says to the Corinthians, there are some of you who are acting like babies in Christ. You're acting like lost people who are saved because there is jealousy and there is strife amongst you. It's a call of immaturity. It's a situation here where he's saying, you have allowed for jealousy to fill your heart to bring it 
to a point of being envious. Envious of what? Envious of the power that Peter and John had to impart the Holy Spirit. Simon's not an apostle. That power is not given to him. And in this transitionary time, apostles are the ones who are giving the Holy Spirit to people by laying on of hands. Why is that? To authenticate the message of God's work. To show people, to testify to them. Why? Because they don't have the New Testament. They don't have the New Testament. So they don't know about going to Romans chapter 6 and checking out what it is to be baptized in the Spirit and all of these wonderful things that happen from that. They don't have that section. So God is using another means until this manuscript can be completed to show them. Notice he says here the bondage of iniquity. You got ongoing sin. You have sin you're not dealing with. That's a problem. Notice in Acts 8.13, we see that when he believes, like I explained before, he comes into relationship with God. Why is that? Because Jesus Christ grabs God's hand and grabs Simon's hand and by belief makes that possible. So relationship is now in there. But because of the wickedness of his heart, he's not enjoying that relationship. He is out of fellowship with God. Interesting book that just came out a few months ago called Relationship and Fellowship by David Anderson. He's the president of Grace School of Theology in Houston, Texas. I encourage you, if you have the opportunity, get a copy of this book. We have one in our library for you to check out if you want it. Relationship forgiveness is judicial and occurs in the courtroom of heaven. We also know this is justification. You hear the gospel, you believe, you trust that. It's a confident conviction that that's true, that Jesus has died for your sins and risen from the grave. Immediately, God pronounces you, as far as all existence is concerned, is absolutely spotless and righteous in his sight. Because when you stand before him, he has put on his Jesus-colored glasses to look at you all the time. You stand in his righteousness, and his righteousness covers you. So as far as you're standing, you are considered spotless and blameless, before him. However, fellowship forgiveness is personal and occurs when the offender asks forgiveness from the offended. This is why we do 1 John 1 9. This is why Christians have to confess their sin. Otherwise, they're not in fellowship with God. What does John say at the beginning of that book in 1 John? I'm writing these things to you so that you would have fellowship with the Father and the Son like I have fellowship with the Father and the Son. Well, how's that accomplished, John? Tell me. Well, you need to walk in the light as he is in the light. And guess what? You'll end up having fellowship with one another. And if you confess your sins, he will forgive you your sins. He is faithful and just to do so, even the things you can't remember. Notice it's about having a humble heart that comes to terms with this. Simon is in relationship. Simon is not in fellowship. What is the cure to get Simon into fellowship with God once again? Repent. He has to change his mind. He has to give up his selfish, self-centered, everybody-look-at-me thinking. And he has to submit himself into a situation of saying, Lord, I just want to follow what you want. This is the way you're going to give the Holy Spirit at this time? It's your way. It's your way, God. I'm foolish for trying to buy what grace is freely purchased for me. It's repentance. How about this? We move into the Gentile section. Let's turn over to 17. Acts 17. We've got a couple more we're going to handle next week, but not right now. Acts 17 is incredibly interesting because this is where Paul gets freaked out. I love it when Paul gets freaked out. I love watching it. What's Paul going to do here? He's such a pistol. I don't know what else to call him. 
But he kind of is. You never know. Sometimes he's going to stay calm and handle something. Sometimes he flies off the handle. What motivates this man to move forward? I'm excited when we start Ephesians in a couple of weeks because we're going to begin looking at some of that stuff. But he's traveling with companions. Silas, Timothy are with him. They go off to another place. If you just kind of glance through your text and look, uh, let's see here. Uh, where is, uh, let me see if I can tell it to you. Um, He's in Athens, verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, Silas and Timothy in Athens, his spirit was being provoked, agitated. He was greatly stressed out. Anybody relate to that? But notice why. It was, he was provoked within him as he was observing the city was full of idols. Everywhere he looked, people were worshiping something. That sound familiar to you? Can you relate to that? You ever look around and see everybody's worshiping something? You ever caught yourself worshiping something? Really admiring it heavenly, heavenly, (laughs) no it's not, heavily, to where you begin to start investing in a wrong direction. Notice that Paul is just overwhelmed by this, and so he begins a daily preaching regimen. It's no longer tent making and building personal relationships through six days of the week, and then on Saturday showing up at the synagogue in order to preach about that Jesus Christ is a fulfillment of the Old Testament. He now moves into full-blown street preaching missionary mode. He probably even had a cardboard sign with Sharpie markings on it. We don't know. Okay, but he's out there and he's, he's letting it rip. So notice he moves down there. They, they, they listen to what he has to say. They call him to a place, the ultimate think tank at that time in Athens, known as the Areopagus. And Epicureans are there and Stoics are there. One are materialists. All they care about is the things that life can give you. The other ones are pantheists. And it's the whole idea that everything's God and God's in everything. God's in that tree. God's in that ladybug. God's not in the ladybug, okay? But notice what he says starting in verse 24. Paul's going to make his defense. Right before that he says, I was walking around and I've noticed that you guys are very religious. Now if somebody calls you very religious, take offense to that. You can't, okay? Because religion is all about here's what you've done in your life in order to earn God's favor. Call a timeout, correct them on relationship and grace, and let them know, I'm not religious and Jesus hated religion. Let's get that real quick. Now, Paul turns around and tells them, you guys are really religious. Ta-da! Look at all the idols, right? I was even passing by and saw an inscription that said, to an unknown God. You don't know what to worship, so you just wrote whatever there. It's kind of like when a kid turns in a test and there's no name in the blank. You don't know who it goes to. You can see the results that come out of it, some of the damage that might have been done. But as far as it being blank, well, we're just doing what we're doing, and nobody's able to get the credit for it. Paul uses this brilliantly, and he turns it around. Look what he says in verse 24. The God who made the world and all things in it. Now, this is important because notice where he starts with these pagans. And yes, you can call them pagans. That's not a bad term. We're not worried about political correctness here. Notice he says here, he's the creator. Number one, you've got a creator to deal with and he made you. Since he is Lord of heaven, that's upwards, and earth, that's here, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Wait a second, I thought in the Old Testament God had a temple. He did and he vacated it when people were so full of idolatry. He was done with it. He did that as a gracious condescension. In fact, in the Old Testament, the word in Hebrew that means to condescend to somebody's level is where we got the Old Testament Hebrew understanding of the word grace. It's the same word. It's a condescension of a holy God down on our level. So yeah, dwelling in temples, God in the Old Testament, that was grace. 
But he doesn't need that. I cannot exist amongst people unless you make a dwelling for me. He doesn't say that. Notice it says here, nor is he served by human hands. Stop. Aren't we commanded to serve the Lord our God? Why does Paul say he's not served with human hands? Think of it this way. What can you do for God that he can't do for himself? Notice that. What's that? Fishermen of men. You don't think God can do that? Come on, Brendan. Need some coffee? Get with it, girl. We got donuts. Get one. It's okay. No, I'm just messing with you. But think about it real quick. Think about that. What is it that God needs service with? How, where do we need to help him out? Where are we sitting here looking around going, well, here's one thing we know. God can't get this done, so I'm going to step in the gap. That's where he's getting at, though. But can't God do that? Doesn't God motivate people to spread the gospel? Absolutely. So God doesn't need our service. The fact that we come and say, you know what? I've been really pressed upon my heart that I need to be doing this. It's a conviction that I have. I see the Holy Spirit's leading me in this direction. I need to serve him in this way. That's God moving through you to bring him into an opportunity. But he doesn't need our service. He never says, I am not going to get this done unless Jeremy's in there. Never. He doesn't need me. I am dispensable to him. Now watch this. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all people, here it is, life. Do you need life? Yeah, physical and spiritual. And breath. Do you need breath? Everybody hold your breath. Let's see who does it the longest and passes out. Let's go. One, two, three. No, I'm kidding. But think about it real quick. And all things. What do you have that didn't come from God? Nothing. Notice where he's trying to set their thinking straight. He says here, and he made from one man, Adam, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. And notice what he did. Having determined, God did this. Having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. We've talked about this before in the past from this verse. You were born at the time you were born. Because that's when God wanted you born. You live where you live. Regardless of the old unholy trinity that we have of brats, cheese, and beer here in Wisconsin. You live where you live because that's where God wants you. God wanted you at this time, at this place, for a reason. Why? Here it is, guys, that they would seek God. He puts you where he puts you in the time that he puts you so that you would have maximum opportunity to find him. If he were to look through all the history of how your life could possibly play out, he has placed us all in the place that he has placed us because he says, I want Sherry. And I'm going to put her in this situation so that she will have the maximum opportunity to know me. That's intense. Notice that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. Why? Because he's omnipresent. It's all the garbage through life to sort through to get to him. Notice, for, here's an explanation, in him we live and move and exist. Nothing exists. Nothing has breath of life without God's initiation of it. Have you ever taken breath for granted? Somebody stop for a second. Sounds like we're in yoga or something. Breathe in for a second. 
Don't take too much. Your neighbor needs it. Breathe out. Do you realize that's grace? Do you realize that's God's allowance? Do you realize that his hands are all over it? Gosh, he loves us. For in him we live and move and exist. As even as some of your own poets have said. Now these are pagan people who have sat down and thought critically about life. And here are the conclusions they've come to. For we also are his children. Because we'd like to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony, right? Get them a Coke and a smile. World peace, it's all we need. Even pagans are striving for that stuff. Look at this. Being then the children of God, we ought not to, here it is, guys, look at it. We ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone. Is God like that? No. Were these people thinking like that? That was their problem. They were thinking that God was like any other God that they could possibly make. Paul turns his situation around and says, guess what? The best that your mind could possibly come up with, the creativity that you could probably press into that piece of metal or that stone or that clay or carve out of that wood, it's not good enough because God is none of those things. God is beyond all those things, and he actually created the raw material that you're abusing for those things. He says here, we're not, not to think that the divine nature is like gold, silver, stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Isn't that interesting that people make idols and then they worship it like it's superior? That piece of garbage wouldn't look that way if they didn't form it like that. Who really had control in that situation? Good grief, that's a deluded mindset. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should what there's the solution what's repentance in relation to this is how you think about god you're wrong your thinking has got to get changed you need to change your mind about who you think god is because he's not like you he isn't made in images like you you don't have manipulation over how his arms or eyes look not at all not at all you have to think beyond you need a fresh, there needs to be some demolition that's done in here to tear down some false constructs so that it can be built according to the creator. Not that he's like the rest of the creatures. Notice, and here's the reason why. Watch this. Notice he gives them a little goose incentive. Everybody know what a goose is? Pinching them. <clears throat> Sorry, in Kentucky we say pinch. You ought to hear my mom, pinch. Terrible. Did I ever tell you guys about when my mom leaves me a voicemail and I look at the text, like how it does voice? thing. It's like, why is my mom cussing me out on this? This is terrible. Because today's their anniversary. She's probably watching this. It's, but anyway, love you, mom. Moving on. She's not saying those things, but it's like, that's, that's how the computer interpreted it because of her slang. Um, he has fixed a day. Here's the reason. He's fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man. Who's the man? We know that, don't we? Guess what? They don't. These people in Athens who have gathered Paul with everybody of the smart think tank that they have together don't even know the name Jesus yet. Notice he doesn't tell them. Through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all the men by raising him from the dead. He raised him if for no other reason, there's many reasons, but so that he could judge. When you show up to court, you want your judge to be alive, right? Especially if you know it's going to go in your favor. Otherwise, it doesn't get done. Notice, this is the reason why he was raised. Now watch this. Now when they heard the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. That's impossible. 
that's stupid, we're out of here, we're done. But others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out from their midst. What's missing from this? He never says the name Jesus. They're thinking about God is messed up. They need to repent, change their mind, and get their thinking straightened out about this. He talks about the judgment that's going to come on the world, and he talks about that somebody's been raised from the dead in order to be God's appointed judge. He never says the name Jesus, and he leaves. So Paul went out from their midst, but some joined him and did what? Believe. Why do you think they believed? Because when they came to him in private, he began talking to them about Jesus Christ dying for sins and raising from the grave. Here's what he did. Notice he couldn't start with Jesus with these people. He had to get their mind about just who God was straight first because they couldn't understand Jesus. Why? We spent 70-something lessons on this when I first got here because if you don't understand who God is and you don't understand who man is, you will never understand the God-man who saves us from sin. So you got to get the God portion straightened out first, and it requires a humility and a change of thinking that goes on here. Notice, among them were these people. Can't say their names, but guess what? They got saved. That's what happened. Now, notice it was because they heard about this that they changed their thinking, and they said, I'm not thinking about God correctly. I've got to know more. So they go to Paul privately, and they what? What does it say? Believed. They repented, and then they believed. Last example. Turn with me to Acts 26. We're almost done. Acts 26. This is Paul's defense before King Agrippa. It's excellent. If you have the opportunity, read the entire chapter. Use that as like a devotional portion for this week to go through and just see how he unfolds things about history, how he talks about how God appeared to him. Incredible stuff. Okay, we're going to start in verse 15. You're probably familiar with this, verse 15. And I said, who are you, Lord? Everybody remember this instance? Paul's got papers from the authority. I'm going to jail me some Christians today. This is going to be a good day. He went house to house, dragging men and women out, putting them in jail. Putting them in jail. The greatest persecutor of the church at that time. Wow, he was vengeful. He actually signed off on many Christians to be put to death. He applauded their execution. When they're beating Stephen to death with stones, he's the coat rack. It says he looked approvingly upon what they were doing. He was a bloodthirsty man. So while he's on the way to Damascus, and he's got all the government clearance that he needs to arrest and shut these Christians down, Jesus says, I think I want to introduce myself to a man named Saul. So he knocks him to the ground. And he says, why are you persecuting me? And this is where we pick up his recounting in Acts 26. And I said, who are you, Lord? You think that got... Jesus' attention real quick? I think Jesus got Paul's attention real quick. And the Lord said, I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. Stop. Did Paul ever lay a hand on Jesus? He did. How do we know that? Because if you're part of the body of Christ, are we not Jesus' body? Yeah. He was greatly abusing Jesus' body. Notice that Jesus considers a persecution against his people as, as much as a persecution by himself. He takes it personally. He takes it personally. Which means that regardless of what hardship or stress you're going through right now, he's in there with you. He takes it personally. So he tells him, I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. But get up, stand on your feet for this purpose. Notice this. I have appeared to you 
to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you. We're not going to spend too much time on that because we're going to deal with that in about three or four weeks, okay? But notice he says here, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn. You've been waiting for it. Here we go. Literal word. Get it out. Hopefully you already got it pulled up. Go to Acts 26. So you hit the top left-hand button, New Testament. Go down to Acts. Find chapter 26. Select that. And we are particularly in verse 17 right now. You pull that up. Actually, sorry, moved into 18. But you've got it up on your screen. You'll see it. So open their eyes that they may turn. People will say over and over and over. He's calling them to repentance, repentance, repentance. How do you know? Because he called them to turn. Stop. Put your finger on turn. What word do you have? Is it, is it metanoia? It's not. It's what? Epistrapho. Turning and repentance are not the same thing. It's not. You say, why is that a big deal? I'll show you here in a second. Keep your literal word out so you can see it. Notice that you may turn from darkness to light, right? Because this is unsaved and this is saved. And from the dominion of Satan, unsaved, to God, saved. Should unbelievers turn to God? Absolutely, he just said so. You come to somebody and say, you need to turn to God. How do I do that? Through faith in Jesus Christ. That's how you turn. There's only one way to come to him. Notice that they may, well, here's what happens if they do. Receive forgiveness of sins. Praise Jesus for that. And has added icing that's oh so tasty on the cake of salvation. An inheritance among those who have been sanctified. Here's the way you get there. By faith in me. Who's me? Jesus. Good grief, that's a lot of blessing. I'm sure Paul's mind was an absolute overload when he heard all that. What? Yet he can turn around and recount it greatly. Notice what it says. So King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to those in Damascus first, because that's where he was on his way there, right? He was going to jail people, got knocked down, so he came blind into Damascus, spent three days there, didn't eat anything. First people he's going to witness to. Notice it says, and also at Jerusalem, and then throughout all the region of Judea, that's the southern area there, and even to Gentiles, that's the nations, that they should, everybody watch, because here it is. Number one, they need to repent. Number two, they need to turn to God. Number three, they need to perform deeds appropriate to repentance. Good googly moogly, we learn a ton from this one little section here. Number one, if you take your literal word and you scroll down a little bit there, take a look down there. You've still got epistrapho highlighted there. You go down and you notice in this verse, turn is already lit up for you. Put your finger on the word for repent. Oh, look at that. Metanoeo, completely different words. You know what that tells you? Repenting is not turning. Turning can be a result from someone repenting. Notice also that repentance is not performing deeds. Does everybody see that? If anything, deeds flow out of repenting. Why? Because if you're thinking differently, your motivation is now different. But if the mind does not change, you won't do anything different. Isn't that the definition of insanity? Doing the same thing over and over and over and expecting to get the same results. Why? Because you're thinking the same way about something. Notice what Paul's saying here. My mission is to call them, number one, repent. You need to change your mind. Number two, you need to turn to God, and you can only do that through Jesus Christ. Number three, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you ought to be living an abundant life, demonstrating that because of your new way of thinking. Nothing wrong with that. There's everything biblical with that. But notice the idea here is that repentance is not the same 
as these other two. Louis Burkhoff, a guy that I highly disagree with, but good grief, he wrote some great things here. According to Scripture, repentance is holy and inward act and should not be confounded with the change of life that proceeds from it. Confession of sin and reparation of wrong are fruits of repentance. Why is that? Because the person needs to come back into fellowship in order for obedient things to flow. Somebody's living in the flesh, they're not being obedient. And everything that comes out is skewed and is not pleasing to God. You say, well, that sounds pretty narrow and harsh. I don't know about how harsh. I think it's pretty gracious that we get to serve the Lord. Narrow, it is. Are you in fellowship with Him today? We've talked about this three times so far. Are we in a situation where we've allowed sin to be a barrier between us and the Lord? So, let's wrap it up. What do we learn about repent and repentance in the Samaritan and Gentile sections of Acts? Well, number one, what we learn from Acts 8 is repentance is needed when a believer has a wicked heart. This is a fellowship issue for those who are already in relationship with God through Christ. The gall of bitterness and the bondage of iniquity was keeping Simon from enjoying the benefits of his relationship with God. And because that was messed up, he thought about God in a strange way as if he could buy the things freely secured for him by grace. The number two one from Acts 17, everyone should repent of their incorrect thinking of God. I think we would agree with that now, yes? You ever turn on the news channel, somebody says something, you go, well, wait a second, that ain't right. That's not the way that God works. I'll never forget when I heard a guy say, I actually believe that God helps all my favorite sports teams. I thought, is that really all that God does in your life? That's insane. Moving on. Last one here, what we just saw. Repent means to change your mind or heart. He brings that up here. Chapter 26, verse 20. But also to turn, epistrapho, turn toward God. What flows out of that when you change your thinking about you've turned towards God? Well, it's the fruit of changing one's mind and turning to God. These are all separate things, and they do not always occur together. Pray. Jesus, I don't know how impactful this uh, is for us to look through these things, but it is important because of many things that we might believe that repentance is, or many ways that we've been told, what repentance is. God, only your word defines the term. We thank you, God, that you have granted us an opportunity to repent. We have that opportunity because of Christ. We thank you, God, that you desire for every person to be saved. We thank you, God, that repentance paves the way for that. Lord, I pray that if any of us are here and lost today and don't know you, that we would repent of how we maybe have thought about you or or, or have misclassified you and how you work with people that we would turn to the Lord Jesus Christ as our only means of salvation, and that we would rely upon you for performing deeds in keeping with repentance, a new mindset that we, we now have. Father, how important it is that we let people know this is wrong, you need to repent. You need to change your thinking about this entire situation. There's nothing wrong with that. Our world may not accept it, but it doesn't change the fact that it's clear in Scripture. So, Father, whatever opportunities we have, you know them, you prepared them, You've prepared every good work for us beforehand that we should walk in it. I pray, Lord, that we would be sensitive to the Holy Spirit leading us. I pray, God, that today, if we understand that we're not in fellowship with you, we're not enjoying the relationship that Jesus Christ has freely given us. Father, help correct our thinking in that. Help us to see that repentance is the only prescription, and we need to take it now. We don't need to delay. We don't need to wait. We don't need to waste time. But instead, simply humble ourselves before you. Choose to think according to your word rather than our own selfish desires. Thank you, God, for being continually merciful, 
Please bless this text to our understanding. It's in Christ's name, amen.